0: Good morning. Good morning. This is uh, a super privilege for me. I am I'm delighted to be the director of mobilization here. And what is, what is a director of mobilization, you ask? I'm so glad you brought that up. I, in a nutshell, I get to help our church body fulfill the Great Commission. And Great Commission, never heard of it. Sounds important so glad you brought that up, curious and anonymous church attendee. So we are, we are called in the scriptures, right? Matthew 28, you don't have to turn there. Matthew 28, Jesus is talking to his disciples at, right after his resurrection. So everybody's a little bit stunned, but he's giving them a game plan. He's walking them through how this gospel of salvation is going to get out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. He says, all authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. It's commonly known, right? That's commonly known as the Great Commission. And it is, it is the way, it is the prescribed way that we are to be making disciples, not just here at home, but across the whole world, until the entire globe is saturated in the knowledge of the glory of God. So you could say, my job here is to plot and plan world domination. <laughs> for the glory of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, no, but the truly amazing thing, right, the truly amazing thing about this great commission that's been given to us is that it's not just for those 12 men. It's not just for these, these rock star Christians that are out there living it up for God. It's, it's every single person that God has saved. We all have a role to play in this great commission. And I am so excited to open up God's word with you today and see what would it look like For Grace Fellowship Church to play that role well. So if you would join with me, I'm going to ask God for his help as we look at his plan for our church today. Father, we love you. We love that you are a saving God, that you are a sending God, that you are the kind of God that sustains people. But we need that help today. Father, would you open our eyes and ears? Would you soften our hearts? Fill us with compassion for those that don't know you yet. Would you show us how to participate in your great plan of salvation? It's because of your son and in his name. Amen. Turn with me in your copy of the scriptures. I hope you brought a Bible because we're going to be all over the place today. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We're in Romans chapter 10 for quite a bit. Now, I've been told that good sermons walk a fine line between preaching and meddling. So I'm, <laughs> just a fair warning, I'm probably going to toe that line today. So hang with me, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting morning. So Romans chapter 10. Now Romans 9 through 11 presents a, a wonderful picture of what faith in God's sovereign plan for salvation can look like. As Paul is is helping his people wrestle through what appears to be God's rejection of Israel... In order to include the Gentiles. That's most of us. So praise God there's a Gentile ministry. And, and Paul's arguing for his Gentile ministry. And in the middle of it, he presents one of the clearest, most articulate examples and explanations, arguments even, for evangelism. Now we see in the entire Bible, with, with four brief rhetorical questions, Paul lays a foundation for the gospel moving across the world, and it's particularly relevant for cross-cultural ministry. We're going to start out in verse 12. Follow along with me in, in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, quote... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. End quote. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, quote, How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. End quote. Now we could spend weeks digging into all of these questions and the truth that's that's undergirding and the, the implications, but I only get today. I only get today, right? Okay, okay, that's fine. We're just you gotta ask. So so we're just gonna unpack one. We're only gonna unpack one question. It's the fourth one. How will they preach unless they are sent? And in the time remaining, I want to unpack that implication that we are supposed to be sending people out. Now, just so we're all on the same page here at Florence, Fort Thomas, I just want to make sure everybody hears what I'm saying and, and what Paul is explaining here. So let's recap. We send people out so that they can preach. Those people we send preach so that the lost hear about Jesus. Now, they have to hear about Jesus in order to believe in him, and they have to believe in him in order to cry out in faith for salvation. Because anyone who cries out to God in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Hallelujah. But it starts with sending. And so the big question that we need to wrestle with as a church and as individuals... What does it mean for me to be a biblical sender? Some of you might be thinking to yourselves, you know, Dave, I've never really asked myself that. I'm not really comfortable with all this. It's not really what I signed up for. I don't even know if I want to be a sender. Sounds uncomfortable. Oh, buddy. (laughs) Buckle up. Because if God has saved you, If God has brought you out of the kingdom of death and darkness, right? Rescued you from your sin and hell. He's also saved you into what I like to call the family business. Now, all of God's children are in that family business. And that family business deals primarily in exports. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, business is good don't let anybody tell you differently all right if somebody says differently obviously they have not finished the book we know how this ends folks i don't care what's on cnn or fox news i don't care what you hear from the bbc or the babylon b okay this this is a luxury that we cannot afford fear despair Cynicism. As Bible-believing Christians, we can't afford to give in to these things because we know how the story ends. The more you see what God is doing around the world, the better sense you get that the gospel is in fact spreading. The kingdom is in fact advancing. The darkness is in actuality crumbling and our king is soon returning. Amen? But not today. Today, we still have a job to do. And so, our first step towards becoming a biblical sender is we have to commit to sending the way God is committed to sending. We have to mirror His commitment to sending with our own personal commitment to sending. Paul in Romans 10, he's not making up some new missions model, okay? He's drawing on what he knows about God's character, about God's system of ministry, okay? Our God is a sending God from the very beginning. In fact, it's so integrated into his interactions with people, it's often easy to overlook so consider with me some of the folks that God has spent the most time with. Think back, think back in the Old Testament. Think Abraham. Abraham sent out of his homeland into a, a foreign country he's never heard of. No map, no anything. Just sent. But it becomes the inheritance for all of Israel. Fast forward. His great-grandson, Joseph. Right. That story, it looks like he's just another victim of a, a stereotypically dysfunctional family. Right? Jealousy, favoritism, attempted murder, right? Who among us? <laughs> you guys chuckled, but I mean seriously, all of it. you know, you know you've considered moving a little higher on the family food chain, right? By selling off a sibling to the zoo. Or some Midianites, whatever. Just let you I'm the little brother of my family, so it looks a little different from my side, okay? Which is which is what makes you appreciate church family so much, because so far as I know, none of y'all have ever tried to like lose me at a mall, <laughs> or in the woods, or rest stop in Arizona. Thank you, my sister. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, I Joseph. Joseph. So you guys, have, you might be familiar with the story. If you're not, spoiler alert: he eventually gets to forgive his brothers for betraying him, but he takes it a step further, right? And in Genesis 50, Genesis 50, he says. To his brothers, the ones that tried to kill him, he said, You intended it for evil. No kidding. (laughs) You intended it, but God intended it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive, even as they are today. Joseph acknowledged his brother's sin. But then he attributed the entire event To God's sovereign plan for salvation. Joseph knew he was sent to Egypt. Fast forward a few more hundred years, you have Moses. Moses is is being sent back to Egypt. and, And it's obvious from his argument with God in Exodus 4 that he has no intention of ever going back to Egypt. In fact, it takes a phenomenal supernatural effort on God's part, right? He has flaming foliage, the, the supernatural staff, right? He recruits the, the, the solid wingman, Aaron, right? At some point, you got to ask yourself, like, God, come on. Like, isn't it just easier if you do this yourself, right? But he's committed to sending Moses. And we see the same thing all the way through the judges, through the prophets. We, I mean, you look at the little book of Jonah, Right, you look at the, the, the little book of Jonah, God goes on a literal sending spree, okay? Jo- he sends Jonah, obviously to Nineveh, then Jonah tries to outrun God, and, and God sends a storm, and then they pitch him overboard, and God sends a fish, and then he finally preaches, and God sends a plant, and then he's having a hissy fit, so God sends a worm, and then he finally starts getting angry God, so God sends a scorching east wind to teach him about compassion. That's, that's six. Times God sent in three chapters. Obviously, a pattern of sending. We don't even have time to get into the the angels and the demons and the hornets and, and the, the the disciples, right? But you get the point. Our God is a sending God. It's not new to Him, and I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking it's just delegation. Okay, God's not up in heaven swamped with paperwork looking for somebody to take something off his plate. All right, it's not even a, it's not even a divide, divide and conquer strategy for maximum efficiency. Okay, because every time he sends somebody, he goes with them. We'll get into that later. But folks, that's not exactly the most efficient use of resources. But it's not just that he uses people and storms and hornets. Okay, that's not just the way he chooses to act. He's committed to sending. We see that most clearly demonstrated in Jesus. God sent himself, that's the pinnacle of his commitment to sending. Right? When he was ready to, to redeem a people from all peoples for himself to fully reveal his nature to the world, he didn't just download information into people, like matrix style, right? He didn't, he didn't just make a, a new kind of perfect person out of better dirt. He sent himself to be like us, to be with us, uh, among us, right? To be weak and filthy, and humiliated on our behalf, he sent himself, knowing it would cost him the ultimate price of absorbing all of the wrath that we had accumulated. He sent Jesus anyway. Folks, that is what a commitment to sending looks like. That's the kind of commitment we have to mirror in our own life. And it might look different for all of our situations and our scenarios, but it could be that we, we decide to reallocate some resources. Maybe we had earmarked for a vacation or, or home improvement. Maybe, maybe we give up a semester or, or a summer. Maybe, maybe we relax that white-knuckle grip we have in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. I I just found that meddling line. That was, it's called meddling. Folks, however, biblical sending looks in your life, whatever that commitment to mirroring God's commitment to sending, whatever that looks like in your life, in reality, what it is, is a commitment to thanking God for sending His Son and then changing our posture from if I send. To when I send. That's important. I'm going to say that again. Our commitment to mirror God's sending commitment. In reality is a commitment to thanking God. For sending his son. And then changing our posture from if if I send. To when I send. Hopefully that gets you to the point where you're at least saying fine. Fine fine, I'll, I'll commit to being, I'm thankful for Jesus, fine, I'll commit to being a sender. I don't even know what that means. What does that even mean? I'm so glad you asked. Just so happens I have two super practical expressions of what that commitment to mirroring God's sending might look like in your life. Two really practical ways you could live out that commitment. And the best way I can describe the first one is by taking a glance at our Small groups ministry. Now here at Grace, we are, we are absolutely committed to being uh, in each other's lives at close range, right? In doing the, the obe- obeying the, the one another in commands, right? And we do that mostly in small groups. And so that's why we like to say that we're a church of small groups, not just a church with a small groups program. Similarly... A commitment to biblical sending is going to look like we start taking steps. As individuals, as a church body, we start to take steps to become a church of senders. Not just a church with a sending program. That means you're going to have to be as intentional about sending people as God is about saving Have you ever considered that God saves people on purpose? You, He saved you on purpose. He was fulfilling His commitment to get someone from all people groups. You belong to a people group, folks, and He saved you as a a part of that fulfillment. It's It's not random, it's not haphazard. I'm not saying that God plays favorites. Okay, Romans chapter 2 explicitly says he'll never do that. What I am saying is that he has some very clear, very specific goals when it comes to saving people. It's not just about quantity, folks. He's not just trying to get as many as he can. Leave a finger in Romans chapter 10. We're going to flip to the end of the book. We're going to go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. This is why you have to read the whole Bible. Because if you don't, if you just stick with the stuff that's comfortable, the stuff you're familiar with, you're going to miss out on what God's doing around the world and in his children's lives. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Skip down to verse 8. And when he, that's Jesus, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Those are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll that open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people, not just any people, not every people, but some people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them into a kingdom and priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That was Jesus buying people with his blood. Turn page over to chapter 7. Go to verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. His blood was effective. This hasn't happened yet, but it will, folks. It will happen because Christ's blood that saved you, that guarantees you, it will succeed in getting some people from all peoples. But that means we have to be intentional about our sending. If we know the end of the story, we have to work our way backwards and say, All right, has everyone heard? Is someone from every people in heaven worshiping God yet? If not, what are we going to do? We work our way backwards and we commit not only to sending, but being intentional about where we spend our priorities, how we focus our resources. We are careful to align our priorities with sending with God's ultimate priority of saving some people from all peoples. Turn back to Romans 10. Turn back to Romans 10. Remember why we send We send because God has ordained that the primary way for some peoples, from all peoples, to cry out in in faith on Jesus Christ is for some people who have already been saved to go and preach to them. But how could they preach without being sent? The unfortunate reality is that we as a church, as individuals, could fully embrace the implications of Romans 10 and still completely miss out. On being biblical senders. We could fully commit to being a church of senders. But if we lose sight of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. If we're not intentional about how we send and where we send. We could easily, quickly find ourselves sliding into one of two ditches. Ditch number one, we might If we forget about Romans 5, we forget about Romans 7, we might focus all of our attention, all of our sending efforts on people and places that already know who to cry out to for salvation. Now, just because someone's lost doesn't mean they've never heard of Jesus. And even if they haven't heard his name preached yet... God might, in his kindness, his his sovereignty, he might have placed somebody in their life that does know how to preach the name of Jesus. So they could hear. Now in places like Florence, like Union, like Fort Thomas and Newport, like Independence, guess who he placed sovereignly in his kindness to preach the name of Jesus? You. He sent you. Isn't he kind? But the unfortunate reality is there are places in the world that don't have people like you. They don't have someone who has cried out in faith and been saved by Jesus Christ to preach the name of Jesus. Sadly, just over 40% of our world lives outside of earshot the gospel. That means that approximately 3 billion people, it's billion with a B, 3 billion people will likely be born, live, and die outside of any human means of hearing the name of Jesus preached. They have no Christians, no Christian radio, no churches, no missionaries, no VBS. Folks, it gets worse. At least in most of those three billion people, there's somebody that's at least planning to go and preach the gospel. There's about, according to IMB, about 230 million people where no one's even planning yet. It's not that they haven't gone It's not that they haven't heard, it's that nobody has even begun to make an effort. And those 230 million people live in some of the most difficult places on the planet to get to as another human being. Whether it's uh, extreme climate, whether it's uh, remote geography, perhaps they're inundated with war, maybe they are openly hostile to the gospel, and Jesus is a, a curse word in their culture. Whatever the reason, these 230 million people have very legitimate reasons for not having anyone sent there yet. It's dangerous. It's expensive. It's inefficient. It's messy. In my own head, I struggle. Right? This is my job. I struggle with the idea of sending someone there. I know that it would be easier for a local evangelist to go there if there was one. I know that it's dangerous and people will likely die before the work is done. I know that it's expensive and we will spend millions of dollars every year just trying to get in. I know it's inefficient because people will have difficulty making things happen. In fact, you know what? It's probably poor stewardship. We should work on our Jerusalem first. But it doesn't take long for those thoughts to bump into Acts 1.8. You don't have to turn there. I just can't get over it. Acts 1.8, it's Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And no matter how many times I read that passage, I can't make it say what I want to say. I can't make it say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem or Judea Samaria. I can't make Jesus say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem or the ends of the earth. I can't even negotiate my way down to first Jerusalem and then Judea Samaria and then Lord willing to the ends of the earth. He says, you will be my witnesses here, you will be my witnesses there, and you will be my witnesses way over there. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm I'm not proposing that we abandon the four and a half billion people that live within earshot of the gospel. Okay, that's not what I'm proposing, but what I am saying is, why does it have to be either or? Can it not be both and? Can we not send here and way over there? I get it. It's dangerous, it's expensive, and it's messy. Is it simpler? Is it safer? Is it cheaper to send right here, right now? Yes, absolutely. Will it probably take more work than it's worth to send somebody way over there? Will it actually pay off? I don't know. what I do know is that sending Joseph to Egypt, Moses to Pharaoh, Jonah to Nineveh, and Jesus to you was messy and costly, and it's not done yet. But thank God he sent Jesus to you. Folks, this is what we're saved for. And if we aren't intentionally sending people to the places where Jesus hasn't been preached yet, we cannot call ourselves biblical senders. I don't care how much money we've spent. So ditch number one that we could fall into if we're not intentional about how and where we send is we could focus all of our efforts on people and places who already know about Jesus, even if they're safer, if they're simpler, and frankly, more fruitful. But the second ditch, the second ditch we could slide into is we could concentrate all of our sending efforts around meeting a temporal or a a physical need in the people that we go to. So even if we did go, we could still find ourselves off of the track. Now again, this this is meddling, okay, so hang with me. I know that we are commanded to love our neighbor, so before you all gently admonish me with your kind emails, I know that Jesus wants us to love neighbors, and the the very story he told about how to do that is all about meeting physical, temporal needs. The Samaritan man, he he bandaged, he clothed, he fed, he housed uh, his wounded neighbor, all at extreme personal cost. I know that. there's a growing trend in global missions that quite frankly alarms me I get concerned when I hear people say words like preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words I understand why you'd say that I understand I've said it myself the problem is I I can't find it in here What I do see in here is a continual call to speak, to preach, to proclaim. See, a continual call to bear witness out loud with your words and your actions. Please hear me. I I, I firmly believe that God is pleased when we use our resources to bless and care for our neighbors. I affirm that we absolutely must defend the dignity of all human life because it bears the image of our beloved God. But if we're not preaching, folks, if we're just using our resources to bless and serve the people around us, you do realize there's nothing uniquely Christian about feeding or clothing or housing or educating lost people, right? You know that you know that a Muslim, a Buddhist, an atheist could do all of those things probably better than I can. But what they can't do is share the hope of eternal life after death through faith in Christ Jesus. They can't do that. We are the only people on earth who can do that. That is our calling, to preach Christ Crucified, risen, returning. That is our privilege. And we're the only people who can do that. If we don't silence, no one will. God's willing to use rocks. He's willing to use fish. He's willing to use angels. But he chooses and ordains you. His children. I think John Piper captured it well when he tweeted that Christians care about suffering. All suffering. Especially eternal suffering. So wherever we send, I hope we will do whatever we can to to meet physical needs and address temporal needs. But I know that whenever we send, we have to do whatever it takes to address their biggest, most eternal need of standing condemned to hell before a holy God. And the only way we can do that is preaching. Preaching Christ. And so our first practical expression of biblical sending is being intentional, being careful about where and how we send our people out. And again, we have to wrestle Through these issues of intentionality, there's no clear answer. But we wrestle because God is intentionally saving some people from all peoples. So the second way, the second way we could live out our commitment to mirror God's commitment is by diligently working to become as skilled at sending as God is skilled at sustaining his people. God is sending, like Matthew 28 says, go therefore to all of the nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and remember, I'm with you always. He has promised not just to send, but also to sustain those people who he sends. But guess how he intends to keep that promise? It's us. It's us. Turn with me. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. We're going to look at, right what this sustaining grace can look like in action. Let's see how does God use the body to sustain the people that He has sent? Ephesians chapter four. We're going to start in verse 11. God's commitment to sending always is accompanied by his commitment to sustain those he sends. Here's what it can look like. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Pause there. This work of ministry that Paul is describing, that the people are being equipped by, the entire church to fulfill, that work of ministry includes the Great Commission, folks. That work of ministry includes sending people out to the furthest corners of the world until everyone has heard and has a chance to believe. The evangelists, the teachers, the shepherds, and the prophets, all of them work together for the work of ministry to be fulfilled in the church body, but let's not neglect the sending. Equipped for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Skip down to to verse 15. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Folks, the, the picture he's painting is not interlocking gears in a ministry machine. All right, it's interdependent organic body parts. We, we need one another. We gain our sustenance from Christ the head. Yes, absolutely. But how does he get all of that sustaining into each body part? All the other body parts. When each part is working together as it's designed, it builds the body. That's how you get the grace, folks. He's not going to zap you with a lightning bolt just because you need he's going to zap you with a small group member. That's what it's going to feel like. Some of you have all been zapped before. I get it. Folks, this this picture is particularly relevant when we start sending cross-culturally. That, that sustaining grace that God's going to diffuse throughout his body, it, it could come in a variety of ways through encouragement, through service, through teaching, through hugs, through meals, through prayer, through counseling. But we all know it works best at close range. That's why we have small groups. What happens when it has to go long distance? Folks, we, we, we talk about being pipelines of grace, but what happens when that pipe gets super long? Right, we all know what it feels like to have that barrier of distance and time. Right, Hugs just don't feel the same over FaceTime. Right? Conversations aren't as fluid when it's on the phone or a lagging video or 3 in the morning because they're in a different time zone. Your spigot might be on full blast, but when the pipe gets long, it's only going to come out as a trickle on the other side. And volume, volume's not the only challenge, right? The further away you are from a target, the harder it gets to see what you're aiming at, let alone hit the bullseye. And I don't know about you, but I have trouble even in close range identifying what are the real needs somebody has, and, and how do I even begin to address them? I struggle with that in my small group, let alone with some of these missionaries. Most of them I have no contact with day to day. And that's okay, folks. It's okay. This is is to be expected. It is the normal cost of sending cross-culturally. And I, I want to affirm those of you that are sending, thank you. You're doing it right, and it's hard We struggle. We're not good at it yet. But that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to be. It's part of the plan. It means that as they are dependent on God, we are dependent on God. We don't bank on our own commitment to get the prayers and the encouragement and the counseling to the end of the pipe. We bank on God sustaining us to sustain them because hard or not, difficult or not, struggle or not, he still intends to sustain them using you. And so we practice. We practice to become skilled at it. Closing I want to leave you with an exhortation and a couple of next steps. If you would turn with me to 3 John, it's at the back of the book again, 3 John. I want to take a a brief look at a, a short but powerful description of what a skilled sender looks like. This is the Apostle John. He's, he's writing to a sender. His name is Gaius. And, and he actually supported and maybe traveled with the Apostle Paul. So this, this is a guy who is obviously invested in cross-cultural ministry, but he's still being encouraged to grow in his skill as a sender. little book of 3rd John. We're going to be in chapter. Uh, there's only one chapter. Great. So we're going to be, be in verse 5. <laughs> Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in All of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we might be fellow workers for the truth. A manner worthy of God. Think about that for a second. A manner worthy of God. Does how you send accurately represent how God treats his children? Think of how he interacts with the people he's sent. Is he distracted? Is he distant? Is he frustrated? Is he stingy? See ask for progress reports is he the kind of a dad who gives but he gives with a bit of a sigh Folks our attitude in our sending matters but not just our attitude it's not just our attitude that matters, our actions matter as well. Gaius is obviously proactive in his support of these missionaries because he's being admonished and encouraged and blessed by John for all of his efforts. In today's terms, that that could mean giving a missionary a ride to or from an airport. It could mean hosting them when they're home on furlough. It could mean setting up a a 30-minute phone call every other week that you just have locked in could mean taking precious vacation time to go visit someone that you've sent. More than anything, it means praying and following up. Folks, I'm I'm very familiar with what biblical sending can look like because about 11 years ago, my parents were in the process of being sent out from Grace Fellowship. In fact, my mom boarded a plane with a one-way ticket when she was hit by a car in London as a pedestrian. And I got to watch that Ephesians 4 passage come to life overnight. I saw, I saw Christians, Christ's body, on, across denominational lines, across state lines, across oceans, surge into action. One, one sender drove overnight to get my dad to Chicago to expedite his passport so he could go. Uh, another, another paid for my sister and me to fly to London. Uh, somebody drove us to the airport. Somebody there arranged a police escort out of the airport. Uh, Christians around the world, uh, they, they rallied and prayed, uh, and we were sustained. My family was blessed and sustained through the death of my mom. You know what's really remarkable about that sending? It's the the counseling that we got. The weeks and the months and the years after my mom passed. It's it's the way my dad's sending team adopted my sister and me after he eventually went to the field. It's, It's the way I get a card from Pastor Brad. Every year, on the anniversary of my mom's death, saying that he's uh, praying for my family and he's grateful for our sacrifice and he's encouraged and blessed by her legacy. I have a stack of those. Folks, that, that is what biblical sending looks like. And so, I have to ask you, are you sending anyone? Do you know how many kids the Dostals have? I don't. Do you remember their names? I could probably get three. Where's Catherine Alvedrez going to college this fall? I just found out she's going to college. I thought she was like 12. (laughs) (laughs) Who are Rick and Lou praying for Today? How can you pray for Beth Long today? What book is God currently using to change Romania through Doug and Diane Marksberry? Why on earth hasn't a PG-16 left by now? (laughs) How do the Coddles feel about Andrew quitting his job to go into full-time ministry? Who are the Coddles? Folks, sending is a skill That we need to practice if we have any hope of sending our people out in a manner worthy of God. And it is a skill. Folks, the places that God is sending, his people are only going to get harder and darker and more difficult the closer we get to the end of the Great Commission. All the easy places are taken. And so as biblical senders, we have to let go of the idea that sending is the same as writing a check or checking a box to subscribe to a newsletter. Please don't stop writing checks, don't stop subscribing to newsletters, but understand those are not going to be enough to sustain a pioneer missionary sent to an unengaged people group. They need more than that. They need fellowship and community. Remember, there's no church there. They're going to need counsel. They're going to need encouragement. Remember, nobody's done this before. They're going to make a ton of mistakes. Now, the problem is, all of that takes time. And if we can be frank, here in America, we are cash rich, and we are calendar poor. We might be overflowing with resources, but we are flat broke on margin margin. It's my life too, folks. Once again, I don't think it's an either or. I think we need to write checks. I think we also need to write birthday cards. I think we can make it to soccer practice and that's a priority. But we can also make a Skype call and that's a priority. And if I'm (laughs) I'm speaking passionately, I'm trying to get through to myself first. Please know that. I'm not good at this. But if I could just be super vulnerable right now, what scares my wife and me about going to the field isn't the struggles that we're encountering when we get there. It's not, it's not the difficulty of the language. It's not the hostility of the culture. What scares me and my wife about going is being forgotten by the people who send us. And I know it can happen because I've sent and I forget. Just being as transparent as I can about that. And selfishly, I want our church to be as skilled as we possibly can at sending before my my team ever gets on a plane. Because I don't want our team to be the last. Fortunately, we're not starting at square one. We have ascending structure in place. Praise God. He's brought faithful men and women to our church that are co-laborers with our cross-cultural workers. They're called Barnabas teams. And they live out, they truly do live out that third John passage. In fact, if you're feeling convicted, if you want a next step, that's a perfect place to start. Our Barnabas teams pray regularly for the missionaries and know them well. You could start praying for them on one of those teams. I'd be happy to set you up with where that need is greatest. Another step would be gaining a little cross-cultural experience of your own to see personally, how does it feel to be sustained by Christ through others? How does it feel to need that sustenance in another culture? We send trips regularly In fact, we have several teams today that have gone out already. They're they're upstairs in Florence. There are some in the lobby at Fort Thomas. I hear there's donuts. Strongly encourage you to go chat with these people. Strongly encourage you to hear what happened in their life that made them go on this trip. But more importantly, what is God doing around the world through his church? It will lift your eyes to see the end of the story. Those are upstairs or in the lobby at Fort Thomas. Lastly, I've got two resources. One, you can can learn more about all of our workers on our website, graceky.org. In fact, subscribe there to our cross-cultural worker email. It's a prayer list. You can learn more specifically about what each worker is struggling with and celebrating. You can learn how to get connected with them personally. Make a long-term relationship. Finally, you could pick up Neil Parolo serving as senders. This is a fantastic example of how to be a biblical sender. It's very practical. He walks you right through it. It's in our resource center, Folks, by God's grace, we are a church who has sent. We have seven families that are on the field today. They're strong, they're healthy, they're fruitful. It's working. And by God's grace, we are a church who plans to still send. Teams go regularly to encourage those workers and to explore new relationships. We're we're building a PG-6 team as we speak to go to another region of the world. But at the end of the day, we don't have to rely on our own commitment to send. We don't have to send out of obligation or guilt or, or a frantic desperation. Because we know that our commitment is only a poor mirror of God's firm commitment. We know that it's God who sustains. We know that it's God who saves. We know that it's God who sends. And that he will continue to do those until he has filled the world with the knowledge of the glory of his son. Filled it to the point where it is as saturated in his glory, as the ocean is filled with water. Amen.